When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Denny Somak, and this is The Rock Podcast. As a rock historian, producer, and best-selling author, I've collected thousands of interviews over the years, and I try and bring you the greatest stories that we have here. On this episode, we're going to present my recent conversation with David Leaf. Now, he's an award-winning writer, director, and producer. Just some of the projects he's been involved with include The Night James Brown Saved Boston, The U.S. versus John Lennon, The Bee Gees, This Is Where I Came In, and the acclaimed all-star tribute to Brian Wilson, to name just a few. As an author, he's responsible for writing liner notes for the reissued albums by the Beach Boys. He's sort of a Beach Boys and actually Brian Wilson expert. And he did the box set for the Pet Sound Sessions and the Smile Sessions. I can go on and on, but we're here to discuss the new edition of God Only Knows, the story of Brian Wilson, the Beach Boys, and the California myth. Now, before we get started, I thought I would go to my archives for a couple of uh, bits from Mike Love and Brian Wilson, just to get you in the Beach Boys frame of mind. So first up is the story of the Beach Boys' first live performance, and then a word about Phil Spector, who had a tremendous influence on Brian Wilson, and these are just a couple of things that you'll hear David discuss. So first, Mike Love on the debut Beach Boys gig. Our very first paid performance was later on that year, on December 31st, 1961, at the Veterans Memorial uh, Hall, or Coliseum, I guess they would call it, they called it which is no longer there, of course. It's been torn down in Long Beach, New Year's Eve, Long Beach. It was the, actually, as I look back on it, it was the Richie Valens Memorial uh, Show. And I don't know if the purpose was the show of the show was to raise money for the family or simply to acknowledge Richie Valens, but it was quite a, an all-star review. Uh, and I remember Ike and Tina Turner, the Iquettes, the, the that's what they were doing. I'm blue, you know. So, oh, it was great. We felt we, we felt about uh, as out of place as uh, as a white middle class American family could be in the middle of all these great black and R&B entertainers. We were the only white group <laughs> on the stage with a little stand-up bass and a snare drum. You know, he just stood there like frightened little school kids, and we, and we sang in front of this unbelieving, this disbelieving audience. I don't know why we were there. I don't know how in the heck it happened. And then we got paid out of the box office as we were leaving, 50 bucks a piece. And that was it. And this is Brian Wilson about Phil Spector. In music, you have, like anything else, like when Phil Spector produces a record, he takes one thing, a piano, and he blends it with one other thing, a guitar. And you, you work with these two things until they enhance each other. 
not sound like they're fighting each other or that the guitar sounds out of place. The piano sounds great, but the guitar sounds lousy. You know why? Because you're not bothering to go to the problem of getting just the right echo on that guitar and just the right volume and just the right sound on it. You know what I mean? The right texture of a sound. If a guy is strumming his guitar and it goes on, 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 you know, in the speakers, hey, hey, turn it down, play it a little softer, you know, or change the EQ on it. Make, make the high fidelity a little more high and the low fidelity just a little more low. Oh, there we go. Now it's starting to sound, you know, the, the same, it's the same principle in creation, although it's much more complex than that. So, I've, I learned everything from it, except like Chuck Berry taught me how to play that guitar, and I, I don't play guitar myself, but he taught me how to help a guitar player. Okay, now that we got you in the Beach Boys mode. So, uh, today, David Leaf is our guest. Hi, David, how you doing? I'm doing great, Danny. It's good to see you. It's been a while. Or should I call you Professor Leaf? Only the students have to call me professor, and, and when they do, I kind of look behind me to see who they're referring to. Right, okay. But that's that's actually my classroom behind me. Oh, okay. That's what sort of tipped me off. I thought, wait a minute, it's classroom. I wonder if he's, uh, anyway. So uh, we're it's, here to talk it's about... By the way, it's, it's yeah. named Lonnie Hall. Oh, I'm, it's I'm the, the, obviously the, the Herb Michigan. Albert uh, School of uh, Music, right? Herb, Herb Albert School of Music, and uh, he—it's it should be actually Lonnie Hall Hall, right? But uh, that's right. It's, it a great, it's a great place to teach. So uh, we're here today to talk uh, about uh, not a new book, but an updated book. And I want to make it clear to everybody: it's Brian Wilson, God Only Knows, The Beach Boys and the California Myth. This is not a Beach Boys book. This is a Brian Wilson book, correct? Well, it's it's it certainly includes the Beach Boys to right. a great extent, but the focus is on Brian. In fact, the very first line of the book is, "This is the story of Brian Wilson." So it's it should be clear to the reader that that's my focus. Um, but uh, obviously, the, the Beach Boys are a big part of it. Right. So the original book you uh, released in 1978 is that correct? Correct. Fall of 78. And when did you start working on that one? I, st I started working on that actually in, in uh, the fall of 77. Uh, I, through a long series of uh, coincidences and circumstances, I got a contract to, to write it. And I had been obsessed with Brian and the Beach Boys since 71. So I had already done enormous amount of research just by being a, a fan slash fanatic. Right. Uh, obsessed with the story. And so I, I knew uh, what I wanted to say uh, in general when I started, but it was when I got the book contract that that kind of gave me the, the time and impetus to go interview everybody who I could find who would talk to me who had been a part of Brian's life all the way back to his, his mother. You know, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about this uh, after we talk about the book, but I, I would tell people, I mean, you've done so many different things and we'll go into it later and you uh, nominated for awards and won awards and written uh, TV specials and books and everything. Is it safe to say that you're the ultimate example of someone who took their fandom or love of fandom and made it a career? Uh, well, I, I think Mark Lewison is... is 
probably the ultimate example of that because Mark, Mark for over 40 years is, has been in the center of the, of the Beatles world doing incredible, incredible work. My fandom uh, for Brian and the Beach Boys led me to the book and that book was kind of the springboard to my career. But I haven't really, I haven't, you know, because, because of that book, I got a lot of other jobs, but it, we'll put it that way. And each job led, led to the next one. But uh, you got to know Brian really well. You, you were actually at, at his wedding. I think you're a godfather to one of his daughters, right? Right. I, I, I was an usher at, at, at his wedding, along with uh, Danny Hutton from Three Dog Night and Andy Paley. Carl Wilson was the best man. Uh, my late wife and I, uh, godparents to 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 uh, Daria Wilson, Brian and Melinda's oldest of five, and uh, I actually got to know him uh, in a meaningful way uh, during the writing of the book, uh, because his girlfriend and her roommate invited me over to dinner when he was there because they wanted me to get to know him a little bit outside of the public arena. I had met him a few times at, at Beach Boys events, but, but this was a chance to, you know, in private, not to interview him, just to be in his presence and hang out with him and get a sense of, of what kind of a person he was. And uh, he was very quiet, very private, very, very shy, and, and clearly, um, you know, he, had a, he has a great booming laugh, but um, at that time when I first was getting to know him, it was a troubled time in his life, certainly. Uh, and we can talk about that in a little while. Some of it I think you're referring to is the Dr. Landy uh, era and some other things. But uh, let's, let's just, uh, the difference between this and the original book, because you've added about 50% more, correct? Oh, not, not quite 50, but per, per, actually, the, um, the update is more than 50% of the length of the original book that came out in 78. There had been a, a short update for the 1985 edition. So, so this book is, I, I refer to it as a, as a massive update uh, because so much has happened since the last edition came out in 1985. And I think even more to the point, I was involved in a lot of it. So, so the update of this book is kind of the opposite of the original book. The original book was written by a journalist, by, by somebody on kind of a, an Edward R. Morrow kind of mission to reveal the truth. Right. And, and this update is, is the story of my journey alongside Brian and what's happened uh, in, in the years since I became his friend. And because, you know, in today's world, you can go to Wikipedia and get the details and great information about pretty much anything that's happened, every album, every tour, every concert. So what could I offer the reader that they couldn't get anywhere else? Right. And what I realized was I had all these behind-the-scenes stories that, that nobody knew, that you know, maybe me and a couple other people had experienced and I felt in the telling of those stories I could I could really add value to the original book. So let's just start briefly and uh, talk about uh, the early days for a couple of moments here. The Beach Boys came from Hawthorne, California, correct? So uh, 
the, the Wilson brothers grew up in Hawthorne. Brian was actually uh, first lived in Inglewood. Um, Mike Love lived in a nearby town. Um, Al Jardine was from Hawthorne as well. So the band was formed when they when when four of the five members were were, were living in Hawthorne. At the time, uh, Carl and Dennis were were still in high school. I mean, they were they were just kids. Mike had graduated from high school. Uh, Brian and Al were going to junior college. So so you know it's it's interesting when we think about what the Beatles had to do before they got their contract with EMI. The five years between Paul and John meeting for the first time and them getting signed to EMI was really a lot of hard work. The Beach Boys who were signed to, to an EMI subsidiary capital, the same year the Beatles were signed, had been added about four months, five months. I mean, it, it's really kind of stunning the difference in the story. They, they weren't working to become a successful rock group uh, at all. One day, Dennis literally came home from a day surfing in, in the Pacific and said to, 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 to Brian and, and Mike, hey, why don't you guys write a, a song about surfing? You could do it at the high school assembly. The kids would love it. And they did. It got recorded through a, a contact of, of, of the Wilson brothers' father, Murray, and it became a hit. Now, it was like winning the lottery. How often does that happen? And the answer is not very. That was uh, Surfing USA? The first song was Surfing. Just Surfing. A, a, okay. a really nondescript, kind of doo-wop-ish, very, very crude, as Murray Wilson called it, record. And there was, there was nothing about that record that would make you think that the guy who, who, who co-wrote it was, was going to be the, the composer, arranger, and producer who was going to change popular music. Nothing at all about that record would make you think that. So you've really had a chance to go real deep, and I'm sure you've learned a lot more about them since the original book. Was there sibling rivalry when they were growing up? Um, the, the, the Wilson brothers, um, you know, were all, are, were all so different. Dennis was out of the house. He, the father was abusive. The father also under also recognized Brian's musical talent and, and created musical opportunities for him, like turning the, the garage into a music room and buying Brian a real-to-real -real tape recorder when he was a teenager so he could practice a recording uh, for freshman songs. So so in that side, in that sense, Murray was 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 good. But as an abusive father, um, it was tough sledding, and Brian, as the oldest brother, took the biggest brunt of it. Dennis, the, the middle brother, was like, I'm getting out of here. So he was off hanging out with friends, going to the beach, surfing. Carl, the youngest, you might say, was sort of hiding behind his mother's skirts. Hmm. But in terms of rivalry, they, I think they just looked up to Brian. They admired Brian. Brian was a high school sports star. He was tall, good-looking, a lot of fun to be with. I mean, it's hard, it's hard to picture when you think of Brian Wilson being the quarterback of the football team, being the center fielder of the, of the Hawthorne High School baseball team. He wanted to be Mickey Mantle. Mm. Th that was his ambition. But as, as he told me, he says, I couldn't hit the curve. So what was their first gig? Do you know? Uh, their first gig was, was, a, was a New Year's Eve show 
uh, a local show and, and they got paid, you know, maybe a hundred dollars to split amongst themselves. And it, it was, again, there was no plan on it becoming a career until the surfing became this local hit and it actually, you know, dented the billboard charts. And I think Murray Wilson recognized because Murray was a, um, a, a wannabe in the music business. He had been unsuccessful in his attempts to be in the music business. And so he recognized, hmm, there's something here. Maybe we can make something happen. And so the Beach Boys uh, recorded some song demos and shot them. And the, the labels in LA turned them down until they got to Capitol, where, where a very young hip producer named Nick Finney recognized that there was gold in them, their demos, and, and, and signed them. But they were just kids. Yeah. It's just really kids when, when they signed with Capitol. I mean, what's, you know, people often ask me questions like, why did the Beatles do this? And why did the Beach Boys do that? And, and one thing that came to me recently um, was that in 1962, Murray Wilson became the Beach Boys manager. And in 1962, Brian Epstein became the Beatles manager. So we had somebody who was a sophisticated man guiding the Beatles fortune, somebody with connections in the music business. And you had Murray Wilson who, you know, had a machine shop. So it was, it was a very different, and of course there's the family relationship which created all sorts of tension and they ultimately had to fire Murray. Mm. Uh, it's safe to say though, that nobody had a bigger influence on the Beatles than Brian, right? And the Beach Boys? Uh, the, the, the two biggest influence on, on, on the Beatles were, were with Dylan and 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 and, and Brian's uh, production uh, and, and his composition and his vocal harmony arrangement, Dylan kind of gave people in pop music the license to say things meaningful in songs that they weren't just about love. It wasn't just "I want to hold your hand and she loves you," but you could write a song, you know, like Norwegian Wood, that that, that had nothing to do with. I mean, it was about an affair, but it wasn't, it was you know, very cleverly written. Um, Brian's music, especially the Pet Sounds album and the Good Vibration single, just stunned the Beatles. And so there was, there was something of, of what was referred to as a production race. So Brian hears Rubber Soul and he says, I've got to do an album like that, that where everything sounds the same. He was talking about the American version of Rubber Soul. He comes out with Pet Sounds. And one of the most stunning things I ever heard, George Martin, Sir George Martin said to me that Sergeant Pepper was the Beatles' attempt to equal pet sounds. He wasn't saying we equaled it or bested it. He was saying we were attempting to equal pet sounds. That's how influential Brian was on, on the Beatles at that particular time. So where did Brian's uh, knowledge of production and all that come from? I know he did work with Phil Spector. How much of an influence did Spector have? So, so I, th I think the two biggest influence, well, the, let's say, say the three biggest influences on Brian um, specifically were the, the four freshmen in terms of their harmonies. That's where the Beach Boys blend came from. Phil Spector in terms of production from the point of view that Brian went to sessions that Phil was doing and saw the musicians that Phil was working with 
and hired them for Beach Boys sessions. And uh, the third, the third one is is a is kind of obscure in the sense that um, how many people in rock and roll were in, influenced by George Gershwin? So the the first piece of music Brian remembers hearing is Rhapsody in Blue, um, which is a pretty good theme song for a guy who ended up living, you know, the, the kind of roller coaster of an emotional life that he has. So so you have him with with this kind of I won't say accidental depth, but 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 the kind of compositional genius of a Gershwin, the vocal harmony arrangement of the freshman and the production technique of Spectre. And I think those, those elements all come together and, and really start to, you know, they're there from the very beginning. If you listen to a song like In My Room, there's a melancholy quality to it, quality to it, the warmth of the sun. But it was, it was in, in 1965 where, where Brian truly began to, to, to find his own voice as, as, a, as what I call emotional songwriting. And he's writing songs like, Please Let Me Wonder, and then In the Back of My Mind, and The Little Girl I Once Knew. And, and he's really exploring relationships and what they mean. And, and that becomes, uh, that, that really flowers fully on, on Pet Sounds, which, which I think of as, as his emotional autobiography. Now, I know you've, I, I could sit here all day and talk to you about this. So I'm trying to hit certain <laughs> points on this. Sure. I know that your quest to get Smile finished plays a big role here. Would you, would you talk about that? Absolutely. You know, I didn't, I had never heard the name Brian Wilson when I was younger. I had seen the Beach Boys in concert. I had gone to a few of their, uh, I had bought a few of their singles. Uh, in 1971, there was an article in Rolling Stone written by Tom Nolan. Uh, when the Surf's Up album came out. And I had never heard the name Brian Wilson before I read that article. I had never heard about Smile before I read that article. And when I read the article, I bought the Surf's Up album and I heard the song Surf's Up. And it was like, oh my God, they're not exaggerating. This, this Smile album was incredible. If this is one of the songs that was going to be on it. And I became obsessed, like a lot of people, uh, of, of who were Brianistas, if you will, with what Smile was, what it could have been, what it might have been, what it would have done. And uh, early on in this obsession, when I was in college and, and talking to my roommate about all of this and not understanding what was going on in Brian's life, I, I literally said, I'm going to move to California write a book about Brian Wilson, become his friend and help him finish Smile. And if we wanna talk about insane notions, that's, you know, I, you know it, it's, there have been some people who said, you know, one day I'm gonna grow up to be president, but the odds of it happening are, are pretty slim. Um, you know, I doubt when, when Einstein was, was 19, he said, I'm gonna come up with a theory of relativity. You know, it, 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 it really was an insane notion, but I did move to California and I did write a book about Brian and I did uh, become his friend. And in certain ways I did help uh, him finish Smile. So tell me about that because you wrote the liner notes uh, for the box set, correct? 
Right. So, so in, in, in 1993, uh, when Capitol was starting to put the Beatles, uh, the Beatles and the Beach Boys albums out on CD, the, the, in 1990, I was hired to write the liner notes for the entire Beach Boys catalog on Capitol. I think there were 20 albums. And then in 92, I wrote, wrote the essays for the Capitol 50th anniversary book on the Beatles and the Beach Boys, giving me access to the, the, the files. And in 93, I was hired with Andy Paley and Mark Lynette to produce a box set called Good Vibration, 30 Years of the Beach Boys. And it's not really difficult to go through the, the Beach Boys catalog and find four CDs worth of great material for a box set. The challenge was um, to tell a story, at least as I saw it. And so I sat down with Brian with a track listing and went over it with him. And I said, you know, between the single good vibrations and the single heroes and villains, there's this giant gap called smile. And he kind of looked at me and I said, I'm not asking you to finish smile, but I feel like we need to include some of the recordings from the smile sessions here. So your story is complete in this box set. And Brian is a really smart guy. He's a reasonable person. If you treat him like an artist whose work you're compiling, he responds with, with reason. And he said, okay, what songs do you think we should include? And I had, a, I had a list in mind. I purposely didn't include the fire music uh, because that had been one of the things that happened legendarily during the smile sessions that, that had you know, helped push him to, to, to stop and work on the record. Um, anyway, we ended up with a half hour of smile music on that box set that had never been released before. Uh, the, the box set was a gigantic success. It went gold. And I felt like, okay, mission accomplished. I had helped get some smile music out into the world. I had no idea what was to come. And in, in 2003, by which time I had you know, been working, making music documentaries for a solid decade right um brian um had announced that he was not going to finish smile but he was going to create a version of smile called brian wilson presents smile as a live concert and and one sun sunny afternoon in the summer of 2003 we were walking back from the movies and he said to me he said i really want you to be there when I'm, when I'm doing this, I can't do it if you're not. And I said, well, well Brian, I, I can't just take, you know, six months off from work to, 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 to be there. Um, I said, the only way I could be there every day is if we were making a documentary about this. And he said, okay, let's, you know, come on over to the house. We'll talk to, to Melinda about it. And I went over and talked to them about it. And, and the, you know, we, we reached an agreement to, to that I was going to make this documentary. Of course, the next step is finding the financing for the documentary. And fortunately, a, a, a good friend of mine, Rich, Richard Walter, uh, knew somebody at Showtime. And we went in and pitched it and they said yes. So um, I suddenly found myself in a small room in Brian's house as he and the band began to gather to rehearse uh, for this Brian Wilson Presents Smile. And it was kind of a, a stunning experience to be part of, let alone documenting. 
Now, what was the name of that documentary? Because there's several of them out. The documentary is called Beautiful Dreamer, Brian Wilson and, and the Story of Smile. And it, and it concludes with the world premiere of Brian Wilson Presents Smile at Royal Festival Hall in London in February of 2004. And you were there for that? I was, I was there for that. Uh, I, I was there for that. Um, I, I would have been there if I was ju just a, a fan, I would have been there. Okay, um, so as fans, let's get right to the, the, what was the backstage like there? Who showed up for that concert? A lot of people showed up for it. I get kind of goosebumps thinking about it, but uh, I, say, I would say the three most uh, famous people I can think of off the top of my head who were there were Paul McCartney, George Martin, and Jeff Beck. Uh, and and uh, Paul and, and Sir Paul and Sir George Came, didn't come opening night. They came, uh, I think, the fourth night of Brian. Brian did a, a stand, a world premiere week, like a, a residency there. Um, and they came, and uh, at intermission, Sir Paul came backstage to encourage Brian, like, you know, you can do this. And you see that in the, in the documentary, and, and, you, and you, they have one of the most Brian and Paul have a relationship unlike, I think, any relationship Paul had in his life other than the relationship with John, hmm. in that Paul regards Brian as a peer, musically, but he also knows the damage that Brian has, has suffered at the hands of his, others as well as self, as, as well as his own drug abuse. He knows the struggles he's been through. So Paul is, is like a cheerleader for Brian, like you can do this. And Brian actually is an extraordinarily confident artist. And it's like, in his head, he says, I know I got this. And, but, but you can, you, if you watch that conversation between he and Paul in the movie, uh, you know, Paul is encouraging him and, and Brian's, Brian's almost like, you know, he kisses his hand and it's almost like, okay, just let me be. It's intermission. I want to get ready for the <laughs> for the show. Nobody ever ends a conversation with Paul McCartney. Right. Everybody who gets to be in Paul's presence always has something else they want to say. Brian is the only one I've ever seen do that. I mean, another time we were at the House of Blues for a for a listening party, and after talking to Paul, he, he was like, "Okay, I, I got to go get dinner now," and and we leave. I mean, it's just, you know, and it, it's people like he's leaving, you know, he, he's, he's kind of, he's, he's kind of a, a, a unique, doesn't even begin to describe him. Everyone's unique. Brian's really special. And uh, Paul's favorite song is God Only Knows. Right. When, when in 1990, I had the, had the honor of being the one who interviewed Paul for the, the liner notes for the Pet Sound CD. And I think it was a, a it was a, really special interview for him because since the Beatles had hit every interview he did was about the Beatles how long is it going to last you know etc when the Beatles broke up every interview was like when are you guys going to get back together this interview wasn't about the Beatles this interview was about what Paul thought about somebody else's record so for a half hour we were talking about what Brian Wilson meant to him and in the course of that conversation 
he talked about Pet Sounds probably be, uh, being not only his favorite album, but God only knows being uh, what he thinks may be the greatest song ever. And when I was putting together the, this, this updated edition of the book, I was able to get an email to, to Sir Paul and he wrote back the quote that opens the book in which he talks about God only knows and the genius of Brian Wilson. And, you know, I don't know a better way to open a book than a, a quote in which Paul McCartney is talking about the, the, the song, which is kind of the title song for the book. So that, 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 that Paul is an extraordinarily generous artist in many, many ways. When it comes to Brian, he's off the charts kind. So did you have anything to do with the BBC God Only Knows video that came out several years ago? I only wish I did. The BBC God Only Knows video, people should Google that and watch that. Yeah, absolutely. You got to go check this out if you haven't seen it, although I think it's got millions and millions of views. It, it's it's quite amazing. Uh, Stevie Wonder, Brian May, uh, you know, just El Elton John, Brian Wilson, and then a whole host of multi-generational artists, each singing a little bit of God Only Knows. And, and, and the end of it is kind of hilarious with Brian at the piano and, and, and a surprise visitor to the piano. Um, but it's a, it's a great, great video, great video. So history-wise, because we were talking about the documentary, there have been several documentaries on both Brian and the Beach Boys. And I think there was that made-for-TV movie on the Beach Boys. Could you give us your uh, your rating of some of these things? Because I've read various, like they didn't like the TV movie, or you know, give us the the real deal here. I think that the the best projects to look for are the ones that Alan Boyd did. Alan Boyd has has worked on Beach Boys projects for decades. He has been um, inc incredibly passionate about the music and the group and Brian forever. Um, the first Beach Boys documentary to talk about, I think it's called The Beach Boys in American Band, done by Malcolm Leo, which, which is uh, kind of the Beach Boys' greatest hits in terms of performances of theirs from the 60s and 70s. And so that's, that's a, a good starting off point. Um, I'll be immodest, and I will, will mention a show called An All-Star Tribute to Brian Wilson, which I, I wrote and produced with right. Phil yeah. Ramone and, and Chip, Chip Rackland. It took place yeah. in 2001 yeah. at Radio City Music Hall. And among the artists who, who were on the show were Elton John, Paul Simon, Billy Joel, David Crosby, Carly Simon, Jimmy Webb, Vince Gill, Wilson Phillips reunited for the program. Uh, it, uh, it, Sir George Martin came out and presented a package, Dennis Hopper, was there to introduce Brian Wilson. Chaz Palminteri uh, was the host of the show. And, and New York is probably the city in America where Brian's most popular in the way that London is the city in the world where he's most popular. So, so doing it in my hometown was really exciting. And you know, Brian did a duet of Wouldn't Be Nice uh, with Elton John, but, but What's significant to the smile story about that show is we opened that program with Harlem, the Boys Choir of Harlem doing our prayer from Smile. Vince Gill, David Crosby, and Jimmy Webb did Surf's Up. Anne and Nancy Wilson of Heart did Good Vibrations. And Brian himself, for the first time ever, did Heroes and Villains Live. And um, 
after that, those songs started to become part of his live act, uh, his live touring uh, set list. And that's really what led to his, his being ready, willing, and able to, to, to conquer um, the challenge of presenting Smile. The, so, the, the, go ahead. You know, I was just going to finish what you're going to say, because my next... Well, I was going to tell us the, the, the story of how Heroes and Villains became part of the show is, is kind of... It, 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 it goes to the random nature of life. I think of my whole story with Brian Wilson like one of those giant domino displays where people set up and they hit one domino and thousands of dominoes topple. Um, we were at a Christmas party at, at a band member's house in, in, in the fall, in, in December of 2000, uh, Scott Bennett's house. And Brian and my late wife were sitting on the piano bench with their back to the piano. And Brian said, said to Eva, what do you want for Christmas? And she said, I want you to play Heroes and Villains. And he said, okay. And he turned around and played Heroes and Villains. And I'm not exaggerating. Everyone in the house came running into that room because they not only recognized the song, but they recognized Brian's piano playing, which is, which is a, a distinctive style. And everybody in the band, they were smile fanatics too. But as Darian Sahanaja, the, the musical leader, would say, you wouldn't even, you couldn't even mention smile to Brian. You couldn't even bring it up to talk to him about it. And then all of a sudden, there he is playing heroes and villains. And as soon as he finishes playing it, Eva says to him, he says, Well, you've got to do that at the tribute. And he goes, Okay. I mean, it was just, you know, right. it, 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 it's like, oh, you think this is good. And what happened to the tribute that was important? He had been told that this music was, in his words, inappropriate, that this was not good for the Beach Boys' career, and he had shelved it. Mm. And now he was in front of 3,000 people at Radio City Music Hall playing smile music and getting a standing ovation for it. And that really changed. He couldn't deny what he was seeing because all along, people like me are telling, oh, no, people, Brian. People want to hear Smile. They love that music. Yeah, 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 yeah. But he couldn't deny what he saw. Now, the most recent thing on Brian, is it Love and Mercy? Well, Love and Mercy was a feature film that, that came out uh, about seven or eight years ago, uh, which, which had you know, Paul, um, Paul Dano and, and, and John Cusack play Brian at different parts of, their, of Brian's life. And then there was a, a documentary called Long Promise Road, which aired on, on American Masters on PBS recently. Mm -hmm. And each of those has a lot to recommend. Uh, I mean, Paul Dano, uh, his, his performance as Brian during the Pet Sounds and Smile era it was really terrific. Um, uh, Love and Mercy has a lot of great moments in it, uh, for sure. The only beef I have with Love and Mercy, as if I were a film critic, is I feel like it, it dismissed it, it made murray a bad guy without without also acknowledging the fact that the wilson home was filled with music um so I, I felt like we needed to see a little of that um it also kind of made van dyke parks look like a hippie clown as opposed to this brilliant brilliant lyricist and collaborator on smile we only see one scene with van dyke and it's, it's not a it's not a positive scene but I think Love and Mercy is, is great. I recommend it highly. Uh, and you think Promise, that Love and Mercy is, is his signature song too, right? 
Love and Mercy is 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 most definitely Brian's signature song and Danny. Um, it's he wrote it for his first solo album in 1988. And when he started touring after a while, it became the encore. And I think it's important. Uh, if we think about going to a Beach Boys show, and Beach Boys concerts are great fun, and everybody's singing along, and they usually end with the song Fun, Fun, Fun. Um, Brian's shows for, I don't know, 20 plus years ended with the song Love and Mercy. That's really a moving moment. He sings Love and Mercy is what you need tonight. Love and Mercy tonight. And I feel like he's not just saying it to the audience, but he's saying it to himself. Mm. That, it, that love and mercy is what he needed in his life um, because it was written during a time when he was under the, the complete control of, of, of a mad doctor who, as Brian refers to those nine years, it was like being in prison. So love and mercy is a, is a, is a very important song. Um, back, back to your documentary question. I think, I think the best documentary to watch is kind of a, starter documentary in the Brian Wilson world is a film called I Just Wasn't Made for These Times, but directed by Don Was. You can see it on YouTube and it's not very long. It's maybe 70 minutes or so. And, and I love it for a lot of reasons, but not the least of which there's a lot of truth in. It. There's also the truth of just the music. And there's Brian and his brother Carl with their mother, Audrey, singing a version of In My Room. It's like, oh my God, this is what it was like in the Wilson home when these kids were growing up and the families would sing together. There's great interviews with Brian in there and uh, as well as with others like Tom Petty and Lindsey Buckingham and Linda Ronstadt, as, as well as uh, Brian's uh, first wife, Marilyn Wilson. Really, it, it's really, it's, it's very stylized, it's very stark, and it's very strong. So what's the general feeling about that uh, made-for-TV movie, which is probably the thing that most people have seen because it was on the TV? The made-for-TV movie? I, you know, I, it's what most made-for-TV movies are. They're, it's melodramatic. Um, the, the, the challenge with, with telling anybody's story in, in a movie is how do you compress... 40, 50 years into two or four hours. Um, and how do you tell all sides of the story? You know, who's, what's the point of view? Because nobody agrees on what happened, I mean, on, on what happened. I mean, one of the things, you know, that, that I talk about in, in, in this new version of the book, I have an extensive author's note where I look back on the original book because I didn't really want to rewrite the original book. Mm. So many people had wanted to read it I thought I should essentially leave it alone so that in this book, you're getting kind of two books for the price of one. You're getting the old book and, and then all this new material. Um, in a movie, wh whose story are you telling? Well, they're telling the story of the Beach Boys. Well, the Beach Boys themselves don't agree on their story. So how's a movie going to be something that everybody agrees on? And, and so I've learned that there isn't one side to the story or two sides to the story or five or even 10. There's just a lot of sides to this story. And, and I ultimately came to the conclusion, which is a funny thing to say, as I'm asking your, your listeners and, and, and viewers to, to buy this book, is, is that the place to find Brian Wilson's story is in his music. 
that's where I think he reveals himself the most. So Brian just celebrated his 80th birthday. What's his health like these days? He's, he's 80 years old. He's had, a, had this unbelievably difficult life. Uh, in the last 30 years, you know, fortunately, uh, when he and Melinda started seeing each other again after, after the Landy regime ended, um, I, I remember what he said uh, about 95, 96. You know, why are you so active now? Um, and he said, I have emotional security. And I think that's the answer to your question, that Brian has been able to do what he has done do with, because he has emotional security. Um, he has the infirmities of, of any 80-year-old, and he also has the issues of you know, someone who's taken a lot of prescription drugs all these years with, with what they ultimately do to you. And you know, he was, he with his brother Dennis and, and as well as with some of the wilder LA friends of, of your like Harry Nilsson, there was a lot of cocaine snorted. So, you know, what's the cumulative impact of that? I'm not a, I'm not a doctor, uh, but Brian was nice, you know, very nicely for my 70th birthday, he and his four of his five kids took, took me out to dinner to celebrate and we, we had a memorable night. Uh, I, I think Brian, I think Brian may be, you know, reaching a different place in his career where, where he will, you know, not tour again. Don't know. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not psychic. I'm not, I don't have a crystal ball, but I don't think he's, he loves going on the road. It's, it's, he loves touring. He wants to tour. He loves being with his musicians who are like his musicians are his favorite people. Right. They're the ones right. who bring his music to life. So he loves being with them. He loves them bringing his music to life every night. He loves the reaction of the audience. Curiously, he doesn't show it. <laughs> so, so I, you know, I don't, I don't know what's to come. I, I just know that what's happened in, in, the, in the past 35 years or so since I wrote the, the original edition of the book was, was an absolute renaissance of, of him as a solo artist, uh, a, a career that I don't think any of us expected, anticipated, even dreamed of. I mean, there's, you know, 15 or so albums, movies, documentaries, uh, tours, historic tours. He toured Pet Sound several times. He toured Smile. He wrote an entire new piece called That Lucky Old Son. He did an album of Gershwin songs. He did an album of Disney songs. He's done other solo records. I mean, he, he really came out of, um, out of hiding, if you will. And, and he was ready to share his heart and soul with us. And if he's, if he's ready to stop doing that, then okay. He's, he, is, he, is, he has more than given us anything we, we had a right to expect and, and, and ever dreamed of. So it's now the 60th anniversary of the Beach Boys. Is he going to be doing anything in connection with that? And if not, what do you know of any plans of what the Beach Boys are going to be doing? I don't know of any plans. Uh, I had heard there was a documentary being made, and I heard recently that the, the, the work had stopped on it. So I, I, don't, I don't have any inside information on the Beach Boys whatsoever. The last time I worked on an official Beach Boys project I think was uh, uh, the Pet Sound Sessions back in, in 96, 97. Mm -hmm. 
um, which caused a lot of trouble, not trouble for the world, trouble for me and my relationship um, with, with the group as a whole, because I think there, there was a, a feeling that I had given Brian too much praise and too much credit. I am, I'm what they call a Brianista. All right. Well, thanks you again, Professor Leaf, and good thank luck you, with the book. Okay, thank, thank you. Thank you. It's great, great to see you and great to talk to you. That's our conversation with David Leaf on this edition of The Rock Podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening, and a reminder that you can pick up a copy of the new edition of God Only Knows, the story of Brian Wilson, the Beach Boys, and the California Myth. It's available at Amazon and other places, and you can get a unique VIP experience at David's website, leafprod.com. And we'll put a link on our site as well. So thanks for listening. Tell your friends about this podcast. And you can find us on the website, therockpodcast.com, and on Facebook. You can also send your comments and let me know your thoughts. Contact me at hello at therockpodcast.com. So for now, goodbye. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.